Tonight on Talking Politics, for those of us lucky enough to work from home during the height of the pandemic, all that time indoors meant a lot less time behind the wheel. But now more drivers are hitting the roads once again, and the extra company is coming with extra car accidents. And from what I've seen, a lot more flaunting of the rules of the road. Now some are pushing to turn to automated cameras for enforcement. We'll get into that ahead. But first to another issue coming down the road at the State House: the push for driver's licenses for unauthorized immigrants. After decades of go-nowhere proposals, a bill to do just that passed the House in February with a veto-proof majority and backing not only from immigrant advocates who argue licenses will allow people to live and work freely and fully, but from members of law enforcement too, many of whom say it's an issue of road safety. Now the bill's in the hands of the Senate where it seems likely to pass, but will it pass with enough votes to override a veto from Governor Baker? Proponents say they've added provisions that address the concerns Baker's brought up in the past over ID verification and voter registration. Specifically, the bill states that though applicants won't be required to show federal proof of residency, they will need to provide satisfactory proof of their identity, date of birth, and Massachusetts residency. It also directs the State Registrar of Motor Vehicles to establish procedures to ensure that an applicant who does not provide proof of lawful presence shall not be automatically registered to vote. But when asked about the proposal on Boston Public Radio last month, the governor was skeptical, particularly over a failed amendment that would have given local election officials access to RMV identification data. That bothered me a lot. We got to create a process that somehow separates people who are citizens from people who aren't, who are applying for this driver's license. If the bill does pass, the Mass Budget and Policy Center estimates as many as 78,000 undocumented immigrants will get licensed within three years. But it's not a done deal yet. Joining me to discuss that and more are GBH News Politics Editor Peter Kadzis and Boston Business Journal Digital Editor Steph Solis. Thank you both for being here. Steph, advocates have been pushing for this for years. You've been covering this issue for years. Is it close to becoming a reality because public opinion has shifted or because the advocates have hone the specifics of what they're proposing. If you compare to two decades ago, I would say yes, public opinion has shifted, but there really wasn't a lot of fine tuning of the pitch this session, this time around. It was really more so fine tuning the details of the bill, as you mentioned, Adam. Uh, the list of qualifying documents have narrowed down. Um, they include a valid passport and a consular ID and a couple of other options, um, but it is a smaller group. Uh, the big changing factor here, I think, might have been the new speaker, because for years, House leadership has, has said, we need a veto-proof majority to even take this up. That's still the case, but supporters say that Speaker Mariano was willing to listen this time around in a way that previous leadership had not. And he had said himself, you know, despite being a ranking member of the House, things were different. He was now sort of the so-called quarterback, um, and that one person in the House calls the shots. And that uh, the margin in the House was really striking, veto-proof, as we've said. Peter, how important for the proponents who want this to happen was it this past week to have the mayors of Boston and Brockton and Lynn and Salem and the city manager of Chelsea come out and say, we think this is a good idea, let's get it done? Well, it's important because it, um, it increases the comfort factor. Um, with, with a controversial piece of legislation, um, leadership and, and people putting forward a plan, they, they want to 
make it easy for those people sitting on the fence mm -hmm. to vote in favor of it. I'll tell you, in, in uh, uh, the fact that there's a broad base of mayors helps that along. But it wasn't as important, I think, as when law enforcement came out in favor of this. I think that was probably the single most let's feel good about this proposal. Uh, possible. And the reason for that is, um, as our own Chris Burrell pointed out uh, on gbhnews.org, that um, it cuts down on things like hit-and-run uh, hit accidents. Mm -hmm. it, it makes um, the undocumented a more responsible driver. Yeah. That's that's what the argument is. Yeah, well, that seems to make intuitive sense. So just briefly, do both of you expect this to pass the Senate and then ultimately become law? Senate President Karen Spilka says she's talking to her members. She's also been supportive of the idea before. So is this going to happen, do you think? Steph first, then you, Peter. And a simple yes so, or no will suffice if you want. Or if you want to get more complex, that's okay. Yes, I think there's support. Senate President Spilka herself said she wants to bring it to the floor, is looking forward to doing that so it can become law. The big issue is timing. As you know, the end of session is approaching. There's still many more steps left, mm -hmm. especially if Baker is going to veto a bill like this. Yeah, timing's key. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, the, 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 the key is can the registration be separated from registering to vote? At the moment, it's one and the same. If that's not solved, I'm not sure it'll pass. Okay, on to another state house topic. Legislative staff in the Massachusetts Senate are moving toward unionizing. There's apparently a similar push in the House. Uh, Peter Kadzis, do you expect lawmakers to support or fight this effort? And I should note that right now, state law does not include legislative staff in the groups of people or the group of people who are allowed to collectively bargain. What do you think happens next? You mean, do uh, the legislators want their employees to be unionized? I'm not sure they'd agree that, that the uh, state needs a, a new public employees union. What's more important, Adam, is, is the trend that this represents. You know, the same day that this story surfaced, graduate teaching assistants at MIT voted to unionize. Coming into work this morning, I, I heard on our own airwaves about the efforts to unionize Starbucks employees. A couple of years ago, the medical faculty at Tufts Medical School voted to unionize. And there's an Amazon unionization push, yeah. And yes, yeah, so this is part of a larger trend. Whether it succeeds at, on Beacon Hill or not isn't as important as the, the larger push for people to be represented by unions. Stuff Salise, you used to be based in the building. When you talk to staff about their working conditions, what did they share with you? So what was striking to me is that staffers would work 12, 14, sometimes even 16-hour days, and even when legislators were not in session. But they would start out making somewhere in the 40,000 pay range. Oof. They would have to wait two months to jump on the insurance plan. And some of them told me, you know, they would wait it out beyond their parents' plans until then. But not everyone has that option. Yeah. And I've also heard concerns about work issue equipment or lack thereof, onboarding issues and other things. So it's not surprising to me that this has emerged. There have been starts and stop in recent years here. But again, like Peter said, you know, it's, it's a big question about whether 
this would come to fruition. Yeah, and I should mention, by the way, just from the reports that I've read, staffers seem to suggest that Senate President Spilk is more attentive to some of the issues. They've been concerned about that than some of her predecessors, but they still have concerns about the way that they live and the way they work. All right, Peter Kadzis, uh, I want to give you the last word here. After we turn to a city topic, Boston is trying to rebrand its image by rebranding the Boston accent. Let's take a little bit uh, of a look at this new ad campaign that rolled out this week. You hear that? This is my Boston accent. This is my Boston accent. Yeah, it is. Peter Kadzis, as a Boston native who has what many think of as a prototypical Boston accent, <laughs> what's, your, uh, what's your take on this campaign? I think it's very clever, I think it's brilliant, and I think it's very apt. Look, my family didn't come over on the Mayflower. I'm a second-generation American, but by Boston standards, by the standards of today, I'm an old Bostonian, and there aren't many people who still talk the way I do. Uh, that's because the city has changed wildly. Look, people like me represent um, literally a passing demographic. When I grew up, people drank tonic. They, they, they didn't have soda. We put our trash out in ash cans because in the old days, trash cans were full of right. coal dust. Right, right. So I think it's a great campaign. It's very modern, and it's pretty funny, too. All right, Peter Kadzis, Steph Solis, thank you both. Next up, a couple years and a few vaccine doses into the pandemic. Many people who've been spending most of their time at home are back to hitting the roads with some regularity. But if the ensuing spike in accidents is any indication, driving a car is not just like riding a bike. And that's why some, like the city of Somerville, have their eye on a possible solution. In the worst moments of the pandemic, there were noticeably fewer vehicles on the roads as people with the luxury of hunkering down stayed home and tried to stay safe. But now cars are coming back in droves. And in Somerville, this isn't a good thing for everyone. Generally, I, I feel like there were too many cars in Somerville, in Boston in general, and, and we go too fast. Um, I'm always walking with my three-year-old and my one-year-old, and people tend to go pretty fast. I come by here every day and there's always cars speeding. Driving in this area can be kind of crazy. And as a student, I do know people who have been hit by cars around here. That's sort of dangerous, what lawmakers in the city are hoping to address by installing automated speed cameras in certain areas following crashes, some fatal, involving cyclists and pedestrians in the city. State Rep Christine Barber represents Somerville and helped introduce House Bill 4583. We have unfortunately had a lot of speeding related crashes and a few fatalities in the last couple of years. We definitely see an increase in speeding um, since the pandemic. I think we all saw when there were fewer cars on the roads, sometimes that would encourage drivers to actually go faster. Um, and Somerville is a place with so many pedestrians and cyclists that we've been doing a lot of work to do traffic calming and try to slow down traffic and make sure we're sharing the road. The Somerville bill joins two others that would permit all kinds of automated traffic enforcement statewide, something that's currently illegal in Massachusetts. If it passes, cameras would be installed in the most traffic-heavy areas of the city. It could serve as a pilot of sorts for other towns that might want to follow suit. Although many pedestrians we spoke with support the idea, others worry about a breach of privacy and increased interactions with law enforcement. 
in some ways it could help make the road safer. Um, I am hesitant about having more just like surveillance around and more opportunities for like, I don't know, the cops having to be interacting with people for really insignificant things. I just think just like adding to that like culture of surveillance is like not a great thing. But State Rep Barber says the bill addresses those concerns. We want to make sure that we are um, holding people accountable for speeding, but doing that in um, the least biased way possible. We know that Black and Latino drivers are more likely to get citations or have more repercussions when they're pulled over in a traffic stop. And having automated enforcement, we are trying to take out as much bias as possible. Joining me to discuss are Stacey Butel, the executive director of Walk Boston, and Mary McGuire, director of public and government affairs for AAA Northeast. Hello to both of you. Stacy, there is interest in Somerville in doing this. Holyoke is also interested. And as we just mentioned, there are bills that would allow municipalities across the state to do it. From Walk Boston's vantage point, why does more automated enforcement make sense? So automated enforcement makes sense to us in terms of yet another tool to reduce the, this traffic speeding and red light running that's occurring on Massachusetts roads. Uh, for people walking, speed is the number one issue. If you're hit by a car that's going 20 miles per hour, you have an 80% chance of surviving. If that car is going 40 miles per hour, your rate reduce, goes all the way down to um, 80%. So there's um, an 80% chance of being killed if you are hit by a car that's going 40 miles per hour. And that's even worse for older adults. And last week, Walk Boston re uh, put out a report about 2021 data around pedestrian fatalities and found that 36% of older adults were uh, fell victim to traffic violence last year, which is much higher than, much disproportionate to um, what we've seen in the past. That said, another, and which was also announced in uh, the promo that went before me, was the fact that Automated enforcement uh, does not require traffic stops to uh, implement our traffic laws. And so we know, as what's, has, been, has been stated, uh, communities of color are often disproportionately affected by traffic stops. So we're interested in seeing automated enforcement as a tool that doesn't involve that. I want to make sure that I, I linger for a second on a number that you just mentioned. Did you say that, mm -hmm. according to Walk Boston study, 36% of older adults in Massachusetts have experienced some sort of traffic violence? No, my apologies. 36% of the 75 people that um, died ah, okay. last year, uh, pedestrians that died last year in traffic violence, uh, excuse me, traffic crashes uh, were older adults over age 65. Got it. That was, for the record, that was probably entirely clear when you said what you did. I probably just misinterpreted it, but thank you for that clarification. Yeah, and all, uh, no problem. And our data is all based on the mascot data that's collected through their crash portal. Mary, I know that AAA is supportive of more automated enforcement, broadly speaking, with some significant caveats. What are the asterisks that are attached to this idea for you? Sure. So we know, Adam, that automated enforcement works. We have plenty of evidence that points to the fact that it can be another very useful tool in the toolbox at a time when we're seeing traffic fatalities and injuries rising here in Massachusetts and across the country in a very alarming way. So we need to be using all of our tools right now, and automated enforcement is certainly 
one of those very important tools. But as you said, we do have caveats. Let me preface this by saying that as Stacy has already pointed out, red light running and speeding are killers on our roadways. And we have seen a dramatic rise in speeding here in Massachusetts during the pandemic uh, to the extent that state police report that they are writing a record number of tickets for those going in excess of 100 miles an hour on our roadways. So that is really an alarming development. It will certainly be curbed somewhat by the fact that we have more congestion, people are returning to the office, more traffic, unfortunately, but it does cut down on the ability to speed. So in terms of caveats, so this tool should be used as a safety first tool. It cannot be a revenue generator for municipalities. And as Stacy has already pointed out, uh, racial equity, economic equity also have to be factored into the equation for sure. Any money that is generated should be put back into traffic safety enhancements and transportation enhancements that make the roads safer. The money should not go into the general fund, for example. And by the way, there should be follow-up and we should see that if that automated enforcement is working well and effectively over time, those revenues should be decreasing because fewer citations uh, are being written. So that's one of the big signals of success. Uh, and finally, uh, preparation is so important. This is not something that should be sprung on a community. And we've seen that happen in some other states with really disastrous consequences. So in other words, public trust is important because we're talking about saving lives and preventing injuries with this tool. So there should be pilot programs. There should be public education and awareness programs surrounding automated enforcement. There should be grace periods where only warnings are issued to drivers who are just getting used to automated enforcement. Signage is critically important, for example, but there should be a concerted uh, public education campaign. Also want to make the point that no substitute here for law enforcement presence, which is still incredibly important, and there should be law enforcement supervision involved in any kind of automated enforcement. Finally, there should be follow-up, and this should also be a data-driven exercise. So we want to be using automated enforcement at intersections where there have been a high number of pedestrian fatalities or cyclist fatalities or T-bone crashes. So we really want to use the data to direct this tool to the right roads and the right intersections. You raised a couple points I hope we can get to later. Stacy. I see you nodding your head. Before moving on, I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you if the provisos that Mary just mentioned make sense to you, and it looks like they probably do. No, absolutely. Everything that Mary mentioned um, is right in line with a lot of, the, of both of the bills that are currently put before the legislature and also the priorities of, of Walk Boston also. Um, I would also add too that, and Mary did mention it, the idea about community engagement and transparency with the program is critical to allay a lot of the fears that many have and, and rightly so around surveillance. Um, the way that the programs that have been um, more equitably implemented tend to be those that have that um, time frame in the beginning where warnings are issued, where there's engagement with the community, where reporting um, annually or even quarterly goes back to community members to understand where traffic citations are being written and how those cameras are being used. It's also, of course, critically important to, to think more thoroughly about surveillance and about data collection and data retention. 
Um, it's important to note that these types of programs take photographs of license plates, not individuals driving the car. And I think that that making sure that public understand that this is a safety-based program and, and allaying some of those fears around surveillance are critical to the success of any type of program like this. I have been trying to read up on some studies that look at the efficacy of these programs around the country. And I've seen some studies that conclude, as you both have said, I think, uh, this is an effective mechanism for increasing safety. But I've also seen some studies that draw the opposite conclusion by suggesting or because those studies have found that creating automated enforcement can create an incentive for people to break suddenly if they see a camera as they're speeding or if they see a camera as they're approaching a red light that they're going to run. They hit the brakes hard, leading to a different kind of collision, maybe tamping down on red light running, maybe tamping down on angled accidents, which I know can be especially lethal, but potentially increasing the rate of other types of accidents. From your collective vantage point, is more research needed before the state and cities and towns move forward with this or not? Uh, and why don't you hop in first, Mary, because I think you shook your head no as I was talking. Well, you know, I think we've done a lot of research into uh, this particular uh, automated enforcement issue and its potential impacts. You know, you're absolutely right. There is some evidence that in some cases at some intersections, for example, uh, we might see more rear end crashes. Uh, but there is also more compelling evidence that that this type of automated enforcement prevents even more serious and severe crashes. So T-bone crashes, uh, side to front impact crashes, pedestrian crashes, or cyclist involved crashes. So um, I think that's one really important thing to consider. This is also where the signage that I referenced earlier is so important, giving people some warning and also that public info campaign so that people become familiar with where these cameras are located and know that they have to slow down. That being said, uh, you should always be allowing proper stopping distance between you and the car in front of you. You should that's always be scanning the road, especially at a busy intersection to see if the light is about to turn red or if the light is yellow. So, you know, some of this is incumbent on drivers uh, to make sure that they're really focusing on the road and driving safely. Stacey Butel, do you think there's any ambiguity in what studies of this issue have found? No, I don't think there's any. I agree exactly with what Mary was said and also the issues around crashes, right? I mean, a fender bender is inconvenient, but we're talking about saving lives and crosswalks here. So I really think it's important to make sure that people are slowing down. They shouldn't be, if they're having trouble stopping, they're probably moving too quickly uh, in the first place. So um, I don't think it's time for more study. I think it's time to start some pilots and, and see how this can uh, work more effectively in Massachusetts. There are many states across the nation that already have these programs. We can learn from those um, and make sure that we implement an equitable, effective program here in Massachusetts. Mary McGuire, you mentioned the need to involve law enforcement earlier on. I'm wondering about the extent to which you think increased police presence at problem intersections or on problem str uh, stretches of road should be considered as maybe an alternative or maybe a complement to this. Do you think that's something that people engaged in the conversation about roadway safety should be looking to ramp up? Well, absolutely, because I think there's no substitute, Adam, for law enforcement, um, not only because of the presence of a police cruiser 
certainly is a deterrent for many, but also because it's important for police to be visible so that people who need help in neighborhoods and in communities know who they can reach out to. Uh, so there needs to be a visible presence. I think it's tough to generalize. You know, I would love to see a police cruiser parked at the very busy five-way intersection near my office, for example, at all times, but that simply isn't possible given limited resources among police departments. One trend that I think is concerning for all of us who work in traffic safety uh, are the conversations that we've had with police departments in recent years in public forums uh, that were designed to really listen to the concerns of police officers. And one of the things that they shared with us pretty much universally is that many of the dedicated traffic safety officers who used to work specifically on pedestrian safety or cyclist safety or safety at particular intersections, those resources are really dwindling and we're not seeing as many dedicated traffic safety officers out on our roadways. So that's why it's even more important yeah. for drivers to really focus on the roads and make sure that they are driving responsible, responsibly with safety as the first priority. Stacy, would you like to see ramped up in-person uh, law enforcement when it comes to these issues? Or do you see automated uh, enforcement as an alternative, a replacement? Uh, we see automated automated enforcement as uh, a tool to uh, reduce the number of um, police officers necessarily out there that are having to make traffic stops. In general, as an organization, enforcement is one of the tools that we think about, but truly the way to um, reduce the number of traffic fatalities and makes our roads safer are really to think about road design in particular. So if we can design roads where drivers are don't have a tendency to drive too quickly, yeah. so thinking about kind of the Vision Zero or Zero Deaths campaigns, that's really where we come down as an organization. Enforcement is a tool, but it's not our go-to tool to um, try to reduce traffic speeds. I'm glad that you mentioned the design question. Really quickly before we wrap up, there was a push to do something similar to this under the Patrick administration. He focused, Governor Patrick did, on the revenue-generating potential, which you've addressed earlier, Mary. What do you each think the prospects of this becoming more widespread are at this point in time? Just briefly, Mary, you first, then Stacy. Well, you know, I think the great thing about a pilot program is that it does give us more time to study. If an intersection has many rear end crashes, for example, during the pilot, that's probably or perhaps a good reason uh, to locate automated enforcement at another intersection where it's more appropriate, where it would save more lives. So, you know, I think piloting of these particular tools is something that has to be really carefully considered at this point because we need to do something to address the really alarming rise in fatalities on our roadways here in the Commonwealth and across the country. So I think all options need to be on the table. Stacy, you get the last word. Are you feeling optimistic that the state will move in the right direction on this as you see it? I am feeling optimistic. I feel as though the legislation that's been put forth that really does take an equitable approach to automated enforcement, which is key to both um, allaying fears in terms of surveillance, but then also thinking about the revenue generation question that you mentioned. These, these pieces of legislation are focused on safety and safety of our roads primarily, and that's where we really need, really need to go in order to make uh, it safer for people walking, biking, riding, transit, and driving in, in the Commonwealth. Okay, Stacy Butel of Walk Boston, Mary McGuire of AAA, thank you both. Before we go, several of you wrote in last week 
about our discussion on outdoor dining in the North End, including Greg, who tweeted about Montreal turning 10 of its streets into pedestrian-only thoroughfares. Greg noted, I think what's missing in the North End patio dining fight is any discussion about moving towards something like this. A whole show about the fight and what if we changed how the streets are managed in the North End was MIA. You're certainly not the only person to bring that up, Greg. I suspect we'll be having more discussions about these proposals in the future. That's it for tonight, but do come back next week. And as always, share your thoughts. The email is talkingpolitics at wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. For now, thank you for watching and good night. Thank you.